dear church family, Jacob was not a very nice person. His very name means twister, deceiver. He was conniving. His cunning character, as you well know, often became a snare to him. In his youth, as a second-born twin, he pressed his firstborn twin, Esau, for the rights of the firstborn. Later, he deceived his blind father to obtain Esau's blessing, even using the name of God to get it. In the holiest of things, Jacob lied, deceived those closest to him. But Jacob's craftiness backfired on him. He is forced to leave his parents without friends, without possessions, just a staff and a cruise of oil. He couldn't have been more poor. He crossed over the Jordan River, leaving behind the land of promise, leaving behind a cursing brother and weeping parents. Everything seemed hopeless. Jacob was miserable. What future did he have as a homeless man? But astonishingly, God came and blessed Jacob in his need and met him at Bethel, where Jacob stopped for the night. And God revealed himself to him there, assuring him that he, the faithful, covenant-keeping God, would be with Jacob and would one day bring him back to the land of promise. Astonishing gospel news. Well, after Jacob traveled a long ways, the Lord led him in his mysterious providence to his mother's family. He got a home, he got a job, he got a woman to love, And the Lord blessed his work. And though Jacob's uncle and employer changed his wages ten times, God protected Jacob every step of the way. And he continued to prosper. And after Jacob served his uncle 20 years, God, who who, who didn't want Jacob to get too comfortable away from the promised land, commanded Jacob, commanded Jacob to return to Canaan. Now, by this time, Jacob was rich, rich in family, 70 souls, rich in possessions. God had pursued him in his wanderings and blessed him. And so Jacob obeyed God. He packed up, and he left. And you know, you remember, Laban was very upset, pursued him, overtook him at Mount Gilead. But there again, again, God wonderfully intervenes. In the hill country of Gilead, in a place called Mahanaim, the angels reassure Jacob 
that God would protect him against Laban and against Esau, who was now coming after Jacob with a militia of 400 men. Well, that's no small trial to face. Jacob doesn't have an army. He's got a large family, but not an army. And the night before he's meeting, going to meet Esau, Jacob is driven to his knees in prayer. And that prayer is beautifully recorded for us. It's the longest prayer in all of the book of Genesis, verses 9 through 12 in this chapter. In this prayer, Jacob pleads for help on the basis of God's covenant, on the basis of God's command, on the basis of God's promise, on the basis of God's mercy, on the basis of God's deliverance, and on the basis of God's faithfulness. All six reasons drawn out of God. What a beautiful prayer this is. And then Jacob sends his wives, his children, and everything he owns ahead of him across the Jabbok. And where we began reading tonight, we read these remarkable words, and Jacob was left alone. And here God meets with him yet another time. This meeting would change Jacob more than anything else. It would make him fit to enter the promised land. Jacob's meeting and wrestling with the Lord at Peniel is one of the most beautiful stories and one of the, at first glance, most mysterious incidents in all of the Bible. In some ways, it's frightening. Yet ultimately, it reveals a beautiful, intimate, transforming encounter with God. For Jacob, Peniel became sacred ground. Sacred ground. And though our experience may never match up to Jacob's, his story still till today tells us much about how God deals with his people. Peniel offers us contagious blessings. Blessings that we want as well today. And so my text tonight is especially verse 29b and 30a. And he, God, blessed him, Jacob, there. And God, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. So with God's help, I want to look with you at Jacob's contagious blessing. And we'll look at five contagious blessings. First, contagious perseverance. Then contagious prayer. Then contagious penitence. Then contagious power. And then contagious price. Perseverance, prayer, penitence, power, and price. 
Old Testament believers often gave special names, as I'm sure you know, to places where they had personal encounters with God. And they did that so that when their children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren would ask them, why was that place named by that name? They could then share their experiential encounter with God. And so Jacob called the name of this place where he met God, Paniel. Paniel in Hebrew means face-to-face with God and delivered, face-to-face with God and delivered. It's a wonderful name. You see, Jacob puts it this way in verse 30, called the name of the place Peniel, because I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Literally, you could translate in Hebrew, and my soul has been delivered. Now, today, I wonder, do you have any places in your life where you have a nostalgia for them because you had an encounter with God through his word at that place. Maybe it's this place. Maybe it was this morning in God's house. But do you know what it means to have fellowship with a living God, to encounter him, to be able to say, there God met me and blessed me in his son. See, that's what happened to Jacob here. He was all alone, all alone. And suddenly he heard someone approaching him in the darkness. His heart must have beat hard, don't you think, when someone comes at you in the darkness. And a powerful hand of a nameless assailant lays hold of him. And Jacob, who was no pushover, he was a strong man, suddenly found himself locked in an intense wrestling match. Look at verse 24. There wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. It was, a, it was a death grapple. And you can just imagine, can't you, the sweating hands of another human being grabbing your own and the pressure of another man's legs compressing yours. Jacob gasping, reeling, staggering backwards, forwards, trying to resist, trying to get a hold of his opponent, putting forth his utmost energy in this match. But the battle was fierce. Jacob wrestled on and on and on. If any of you uh, young men are into wrestling, you know how tiring wrestling can be. If you really wrestle with someone, you're exhausted in 10 minutes. You can't do it a half hour. The Bible says Jacob wrestled until the breaking of the day. The whole night. This was a battle, you see. And at some point in that night, Jacob realizes he's not wrestling with an ordinary human being. But it's something, someone special. 
And of course it was a theophany. Theophany is a fancy word that means a manifestation of God in human form. And although the angel, you see, refused to give his name, it's clear from Hosea 12 verse 4 that this is not just any angel. This is the Son of God. Jesus Christ. In a pre-incarnate experience and appearance on earth. Jacob is wrestling with the God-man Messiah who would one day descend from his own loins. The Messiah would die for Jacob's sins and rise from the dead. He's wrestling with Christ, the creator, the judge, the savior of the world. This is amazing. And the Messiah seems to set himself against Jacob. Jacob Jacob didn't start the wrestling match. It wasn't his idea. But the Messiah came to him and and took him on. On the borders of the promised land, the God-man challenged Jacob. Standing in his way as Jacob approached his inheritance and contended with him. Have you ever wrestled with God in the dark? If you're a believer, you almost certainly have, at least to some degree. You've had to wrestle with your sin in the dark. In the face of God, you've had to wrestle against disappointment and perhaps betrayal. You've had to wrestle with pain and illness or loss and loneliness, frustration, opposition. Maybe you've had to wrestle with discouragement, even depression and doubts, temptations, worry, anxiety afflictions, fears. Sometimes you're late awake at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, and you're crying out to God. And the problems you're wrestling with are overwhelming you, too big for you to get your arms around. And you feel a sense of futility and defeat and emptiness. Maybe you've even experienced the dark night of the soul. As you wrestled, crying out for help with God. The beautiful thing here is that Jacob was given the blessing of perseverance. And he blessed him there. Jacob just didn't give up and forsake God. Jacob needed God. He persevered all the night. There wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. See, one of the signs when you you have only temporary faith is that it's just temporary and you you give up and you, you leave God. But one of the contagious blessings of the people of God is that they persevere in the midst of darkness, in the midst of wrestlings, and fears and doubts 
and overwhelming burdens. We read in Hebrews that Jacob must have realized his fellow wrestler was greater than himself, that the lesser, which is Jacob, must be blessed by the greater, which is Jesus. Hebrews 7, 7. He senses the divine presence in his opponent. And he's determined by the grace of God to persevere. No longer now just to defend himself, but now realizing that his wrestler is the greater, he wants the wrestler's blessing. And isn't that just the same with you if you're a true believer? You you realize that many of the things you wrestle with in your life, all these things I mentioned, they're really designed by God to bring you into that position where you cry out, Lord, I need something greater than my troubles. I need, in fact, my troubles are, are bringing me into wrestling with thee for thy blessing and that thou would be my blesser. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And you see, once you realize that, You have a whole new view of all your troubles and trials and discouragements and even depression. And and you realize that all things work together for good to this good that you need God. That you cannot let go until you have the benediction of the Most High. So this is a contagious blessing. Perseverance. That God gives in His grace. And that contagious blessing always leads to prayer. And true prayer is a tremendous blessing. Tremendous blessing. You know, when I was nine years old, my dad brought me into, his, into my parents' bedroom. I remember it vividly because I, I was never in their bedroom. And he sat me down on the bed and he took out his wallet He took out some money and he laid it down on the bed. And he said, do you know, son, do you know what God's people have that an unbeliever never truly has? And I always said no to my dad's questions because I always got the wrong answer. And he said to me, God's people always have a place to go. And he got tears in his eyes. And he said, prayer, the throne of grace, that's worth more than this money and all the money in the world. What a blessing prayer is. And you see, when you persevere with God, You're praying with God, aren't you? As Jacob's wrestling, as he cries out, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. What's he doing? He's praying. He's going to the open throne. And Jacob, who had been so often arrogant, he's not not arrogant here. These words are being spoken by an exhausted, broken, helpless man who would not let go of his God. And that, you see, is a mark of true faith. Faith will not let go of God. Faith will not turn its back on God. And so God's purpose in making a struggle 
through trials in life, is to bring us to our knees and to cling to Him in prayer until we receive a blessing. This is beautiful. Hard. Hard to go through sometimes. Painful, but sweet. It is sweet to be alone with God in the midst of strife. Crying out, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Now, when God gives us this contagious blessing of prayer, I'm not going to say all the time, but I dare to say most of the time, two things come together. Solitude usually happens when we're all alone, or we feel like we're all alone. Maybe in a church service, everyone else falls away except you and God. The minister falls away, the people fall away. That's possible too. But normally it happens when you're all alone or feel all alone, and where there is strife. Solitude and strife are a powerful mixture to circumstantially drive a believer to God in prayer. In true prayer, we take hold of the kingdom of heaven by violence. For the violent take it by force. In true prayer, we take hold of the Almighty. God complains of his people. In Isaiah 64, verse 7, No man stirreth up himself to take hold of me. Oh, would to God that we would take more hold of him in prayer. When solitude and strife come together in our lives. And you see, that's that's what our forefathers had so much of, and we so little of, I'm afraid. That's really the difference between times of revival also and times of the day of small things. You see in the Reformers, you see in the Puritans, and you see in times of revival, this great wrestling with God in prayer. The old Scottish divines used to say, the Covenanters, keep praying until you Pray through and lay hold of the ear of the Lord of Sabaoth. I have a very close friend in Scotland today. He's an extremely godly man. He's a real wrestler with God, a real prayer warrior. He was telling me one time, he said, there's one prayer God has never answered in his life. Prayer for revival. He said, but I'm going to pray for it until I die. Another time he said to me, you know, sometimes when I go to prayer, I'm just so cold and get off my knees five minutes later and I'm, I just think, well, what a poor prayer that was. And you, you know that feeling, right? And he said, then I say, no, no. And I go back to prayer and I keep praying until, until God visits me. Oh, oh, for more wrestling with God. Oh, for that contagious blessing of communion with God through prayer. Son-in-law of John Knox. Man not very well known today, but is a spiritual giant. His name was John Welsh. His wife said after, after he died that he never, never, <laughs> it's amazing, Slept through a night in his life, but he always would get up in the middle of the night, take his robe, go off into a side 
side room, cold in northern Scotland. And he'd be crying out to God for people in his church, wrestling with God that he would bless various people in his church. And his wife would be so worried about him, she'd get out of bed and she'd, she'd go, and she'd, she wouldn't dare enter the room. It's too sacred, she said. But she'd stay still outside the door and she'd say, John, honey, you're going to catch pneumonia. Please come back to bed. And then she'd hear his voice saying, Oh, my dear, I have 3,000 souls to care for. That was the size of his congregation. 3,000 souls to care for, and I know not how it is with many of them. They'd be praying for in the middle of the night for his congregation one by one, wrestling with God. Oh, God help us to know what it means experientially to cry out, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. But then there's also, thirdly here in this text, a contagious penitence, a contagious repentance, we might say. Now, it's impossible, you see, to be in the presence of God, the holy God, and to experience His holiness, His righteousness, and His majesty without being aware of our own sinfulness without repenting before Him in profound humility. Our greatest times of communion with God are where God becomes everything, God becomes big, we become nothing, we become small, and we repent at His feet. Faith is never without repentance. And repentance is never without faith. They're two sides of one coin. When you believe, you penitently believe. When you repent, you believingly repent. You say, yes, that's well and good, but, but where, where is the sign of his repentance in these verses? Well, there's two big signs. And give me a moment to develop them for you. The first is the angel's crippling touch. The angel's crippling touch. When that angel touched him and Jacob was instantly wounded, Jacob realized this is no mere man. Douglas McMillan, who was a dear man of God from Scotland, who passed away maybe 30 years ago, he preached once in Grand Rapids. And uh, I was so moved by the end of the sermon, I, I just left the church and just went to find a place to cry. This man had communion with God. There's no doubt about it. But he was a great wrestler when he was young. He was a big man, kind of a grandfatherly, strong figure. And uh, he made the comment in one of his books that it would require a very severe blow or twist to dislocate the thigh joint of a fit man. So, this wasn't a totally destructive touch. It wasn't a crush. It was a touch. But it wounded Jacob. And as Douglas McMillan went on to say in that book, every single throw that a wrestler uses centers around the pivot of his thigh. So if you injure a wrestler's thigh, he's basically finished. So the angel, you see, battered 
Jacob saw enough that he would lose the battle. Jacob was in the grip of God's relentless, crippling grace. He was experiencing the severe mercy of God. He was in agony when his hip went out of joint. He knew he could not win this fight. He was a beaten man. Now, what do you do when you're a wrestler and you're getting beat? I suppose the only thing you can do is try to lay hold of your opponent, wrap your arms around him, and throw your dead weight upon the opponent. And you see, that's what Jacob is doing when he clings more tightly than ever to the angel of the covenant and throws himself upon him and says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. So, in the first phase of the wrestling that evening, an angel who looked like a man strove with Jacob, and Jacob did not get the victory. But in the second phase, Jacob took the initiative in the struggle, threw himself upon the angel, and gained the victory. This is the mighty paradox of grace. After Jacob was wounded and bruised and broken, he kept striving with God until he gained the victory. It's amazing. The secret of that striving was that he went on, not in his own strength or ingenuity or scheming, but by now clinging to the one who alone could help him. Now, what does that teach you and me today about some of the failures we've experienced in our lives when we think we're all washed up because our failures have humiliated us and brought us down or our our sins have destroyed us and crippled us? That very brokenness may well be God's way to bring you back to Himself where you can cling to Him and beg Him for His mercy to go on. Because it's when we realize that we can do nothing, that we cling to God, and that God perfects His strength in our weakness. And so in a way, you see, the man that God would not let go became the man who would not let God go. Jacob really lost the battle, and yet he won the battle. He wins by losing. And God wins as well. It doesn't make human sense, but this is a win-win wrestling match. A win-win wrestling match. Jacob has power through weakness and prevails, God says. So he calls him Israel. And God has power through his strength and prevails to break Jacob. So that his strength is made perfect in Jacob's weakness. There's not a tie here. But they both win. And this is the way of grace. When God gains the victory over us, we prevail as well. Jacob wins by being blessed. God wins by being the blessing and the blesser in Christ Jesus. Has God ever broken you? Ever broken you down till you could only cling to Him in absolute dependence? And you cried out, when I am weak, then am I strong? You realized how weak you were, 
You fell upon the sovereign wisdom and power of God with all your weight clinging to God and God did not let you go and you repented there at his feet and you said, I'm worthy to be cast away but Lord, all my strength is in thee. Then you win the battle by losing. This is the mystery of grace. In fact, those places are so sweet in our life that when we're there, we wish we could stay there all our lifetime. Jacob is brought to this kind of repentance here through the angel's crippling touch. But there's a more obvious way that Jacob repents. You don't catch it when you first read it. But when you think about it, it becomes patently obvious. Or patently obvious. Patently obvious. And that is this. Jacob's new name. Jacob's new name. Let, let, me, let me explain that. In verse 27, the angel asked Jacob, what is your name? I, you may say, well, that's a strange question. If this is the angel of the covenant and he knows everything, why would he ask him his name? Doesn't he already know? Well, of course he knows. But why does he ask? Well, boys and girls, do you remember 20 years before this? Remember Jacob came in front of his dad, Isaac? And what is the, what, you remember what his dad asked him? What is your name? Remember the word Jacob means twister, deceiver. Jacob did not say, twister, deceiver, Jacob. He said Esau. He lied. That lie had never been wiped away. The angel now asked him, what is your name? His brokenness, his weakness, his repentance. Verse 27, Jacob says, Jacob, Jacob, I'm a twister. I'm a deceiver. With all the conniving he'd done for so many years, Jacob now becomes Jacob. He finally admits who he is. First time he said, I'm Esau, thy firstborn, dad, father. Now he says, to God, I am I'm Jacob, the deceiver. The deceiver. You see, God deals with us in a real way. The only way we can experience a real God in His superabounding grace is becoming, by becoming real with Him in the way of repentance. So we don't play games anymore with God. He brings us to sweet, contagious repentance at those places where He blesses us. And He does that by making us truly admit who we truly are. So that he can then unveil to us who he is and what he's willing to be to us and for us and in us through Jesus Christ. And that's why it's so important, so important in our dealings with God that we stop our scheming and our conniving and our, our trickery and that we lose our self-righteousness and become nothing but a Jacob, a hell-worthy sinner before God. So here's the point. As long as we harbor unconfessed sin in our hearts, unconfessed that is before God especially, 
we will not be brought into great spiritual liberty. We will not see God's face of mercy as long as we cling more to sin than to God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 tells us, your sins have separated you between you and your God and have hid his face from you that he will not hear you. But when we become what we are, God becomes what he is to us. And you see, when that happened, as soon as Jacob said Jacob, the angel said, thy name shall no more be called Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. And he blessed him there. Contagious perseverance, contagious prayer, contagious repentance. Jacob was brought to the right place. And by calling him Israel, he received, which is my forethought, contagious power. Contagious power. Thy name shall no more be called Jacob, verse 28, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. You see, now it becomes real that Jacob's greatest terror in life is not Esau. But he needs God more than anything else or anyone else. Hosea 12 verse 4 says, He, Jacob, had power over the angel and prevailed. Making supplication over him. Making supplication over the angel. Calvin writes, Whenever we are tempted and tried, our business is truly, first of all, with God, not with Esau. At first sight, that seems foolish, doesn't it? It seems unreal. I mean, come on. Esau's coming with 400 men. That's the biggest problem. No, no, no. We have more to do with God, says Calvin, the primary cause of all things, than the secondary causes which are Esau and other problems. So God doesn't force himself upon us, but he wins us over. He wins us over by his presence. He could have annihilated, that angel could have annihilated Jacob at any moment. He could have crushed him altogether. But he wanted Jacob to come to the end of himself in order to enable him and give him grace to prevail over the angel. So he touches him. And breaks him so that Jacob surrenders to God. God's power prevails in his children so that they prevail with him. This is contagious power. In Christ, you see, we receive a new name and we are personally transformed. Now, sometimes it happens suddenly, sometimes it happens gradually. In my, my life, it happened very suddenly when the Lord delivered me powerfully and I was in bed with tears streaming down my face and just praising God and got my dad up actually at three o'clock in the morning and told him, I've been saved. I found a way of escape in Jesus Christ. He's prevailed over me. Now whether it happens more gradually or more suddenly doesn't matter. The point is, that he wins the victory over you so that you learn to say, nothing shall separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. 
So this power by which Jacob prevails over the angel, by God's superbounding grace, is not a physical power. We're talking here about a, not a mental or magical or meritorious power, but it's a spiritual power. It's a power that flows out of the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. It flows out of the Savior who perfectly took the place of Jacob so that Jacob could be set free by dying for Jacob and obeying the law for Jacob and doing everything Jacob needed to have done for him so he could be ushered into the presence of Almighty God as a child of God. And so Jacob experiences this kind of persistent power at Peniel. The angel of the covenant blesses him there. And when the angel of the covenant, when Jesus Christ blesses you, you can't remain untransformed. You can't not worship him. You feel a power in you that enables you to say, I reckon myself dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I want to surrender my whole life to him. It transforms you. And you're saved and the burden of sin rolls off your back and you're set free in Christ. Oh, what a power. God's power conquering me so that I prevail with God and with men. And then we read these amazing words, verse 31. As he passed over Penuel, which is the same thing as Peniel, by the way, the sun rose upon him. The sun rose upon him. Now I want you to picture this. Jacob is limping, right? He's walking. He's going forward. He's in pain, but he's walking. He's limping. And the sun rises upon him. You get the picture. It's a beautiful picture. A sunrise is a powerful thing. Why? A sunrise suggests promise. Promise of a new day. The sun of righteousness. Malachi uses that very idea. Son of righteousness arises with healing in his wings and we go forth as calves of the stall. But a sunrise, secondly, also suggests peace. Sunrise is very peaceful. makes you feel calm inside, right? That's powerful. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And the sunrise, thirdly, suggests purity. It's as if the sun, when the sun rises, as if it comes down and just washes the world clean. So Jesus is that pure Savior who washes us clean every whit. This is the power of God working in us so that we may know a powerful promise, a powerful peace, and a powerful purity. And yet, it still costs us a price. It costs us our life. It costs us our own righteousness. Which leads me to my fifth thought. There's a contagious price. A contagious price. He halted. He halted upon his thigh. Jacob would be a halter to the end. He left Peniel with a new name, but also a new way of walking. There was a price to pay. A price to pay. You can't be a Christian 
without being willing to pay the price. He who loves father, mother, wife, or children more than me is not worthy of me. You see, in his loving wisdom, God sometimes injures us to bring us closer to him. God sometimes brings us through deep waters and makes us limp for the rest of our lives. Taking something away or someone out of our lives, crippling us, but later we say, Thou hast afflicted me in truth and faithfulness. And we would never change. And we embrace the pain. We embrace the cross. Martin Luther said the life of a godly man consists in the cross, in solitude, and in weakness. It sounds depressing, but it's not. Because it drives us to Christ. And we find in Christ more than we could ever lose from losing everything else. So pray for God. And thank, pray for God to, to touch you to touch you in those places where you need to be touched, where sin needs to be broken. Pray that he will reshape you and remake you. Pray that you will come to the place of of Paul. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Well, let me close this sermon by just asking you a couple questions. Are you, are you in the dark? Are you wrestling in the dark, perhaps even now? Cling to God. Cling to God. And his blessing will certainly begin. After a night of darkness, a new day dawned for the weary, broken, limping Jacob. And as he walks away, limping... He says, it's penile, for I've seen God face to face, and my soul is delivered. Today, we no longer have to ask the angel of the covenant, what is your name? Because we have the whole Bible. We know the real name of the angel of the covenant is Jesus, and in him we are blessed. And through God's grace, he leaves his mark upon us so that we learn to live in Jesus and out of Jesus and unto Jesus and for Jesus and with Jesus. And the more Christ-centered our lives become, the more we are blessed. Because that's what heaven will be. A life centered upon Jesus and through him, the triune God, forever. There's a glorious future awaiting you, dear child of God. And maybe some of you are thinking tonight, but, but this can't be for me. I'm, I'm, too big, I'm too big of a sinner. Or I'm, I'm too old. Or I've sinned too long. I'm too hard-hearted. I don't feel anything. There's no impossible cases with God. There's no, you hear me, there's no impossible cases with God. Not a single person sitting here tonight 
is beyond God's reach. You too can be saved, dear children, teenagers, seniors. Jesus says he will not turn away any who come unto him. Now, what I think is beautiful here, and I'll close with this thought. What I think is beautiful here is this. God says, your name shall no more be called Jacob. It shall be Israel. So now you and I don't expect the name Jacob to appear any more times in the Bible, right? That name's done. Now he's Israel. But if that was the case, and you feel the magnitude of your sin, wouldn't you say to yourself, but yeah, I'm no Israel, so there's no hope for me. I'm not an Israel. I, I don't have... I don't prevail with God in that. I'm I'm just full of sin. The interesting thing is that God 20 times later in the Bible says, I am the God of Jacob. I'm the God of people who in themselves are nothing but twisters and deceivers. So you can't use that argument with God that it can't be possible for you. In fact, in fact, the Bible even says in Psalm 144, happy is he that has the God of Jacob for his help. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. So ask and seek and knock and it shall be open to you. And you will find and you will receive Because the angel of the covenant is a willing and able Savior who receives the greatest of sinners, who come to Him just as they are. So just come and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And tell Him, tell Him, I'm just a Jacob. My name is Jacob. Save me. Save me. Save me, Lord. I will not let thee go until thou bless me. And don't rest until you know and he blessed you there. Amen. Gracious God, please bless, oh, please bless every one of us. Every one of us needs Thee desperately. Break us in order to heal us. Wound us in order to bind us up, as Thou hast promised in the book of Micah that Thou wouldst do. And lead us to Thyself and help us to cling to Thee through thy Son, and do thou be the God of Jacob's in our midst, our God forever and ever. Amen.